well, good afternoon everyone and thank you for coming along to listen to what we have to have to say this afternoon. I suppose if we want a simple answer to the question, is the Bible a message from a God I cannot see? The answer is yes, because God in, is in heaven and we're on the earth. But obviously there's a lot more to it than that. We want to find out why we cannot see God and there's only one place to do that, that is of course in the pages of the Bible. I think before we start, there's one other thing I'd like to just clarify. You see, the, the, there are two points of view that we can view this from. We can look at it from a human point of view, or we can look at it from God's point of view. And I suppose if we look at it from a human point of view, we might well say, well, if God's going to hide himself away somewhere, you know, why, why should I bother with a God like that? And I, I suspect that's the way that some people do see it. But it's not wise to look at it from a human point of view. And that's why I took that reading from Isaiah 55. We, we read there in verse 8 of that chapter, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Like there's a difference between the way in which God thinks and the way in which we think. And then the prophet goes on, at verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right. So there's a difference between the way in which God thinks and the way in which we think. God thinks on a much higher level than we do. And of course, once again, the Bible is designed to lift our thinking into the realms of the way in which God sees things. And then Isaiah, in this chapter, he, he, he paints a picture. He says at verse 10, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it maketh seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. You see, God sends the rain from heaven for a reason. That's what Isaiah is saying. Uh, the end of the story is so that we can have something to eat, you know, so that the crop <coughs> might grow. And God says through Isaiah, well, my word's like that. So although we cannot see God physically, we have his word before us. And as Isaiah tells us here, you see, God thinks on a much higher level than we do. So we are, if we are wise, we're going to look at it really from God's point of view. And the only way to do that is to look at the pages of Scripture. I suppose another way of saying that, that God's ways are different to our ways, if we turn to the Psalms and Psalm 90. And this is a Psalm which brings out the contrast between God and ourselves. Uh, Psalm 90 and verse 1. Lord, 
Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. You see, that's God. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And of course, those two verses tell us that God made the earth as well. But that's not our subject for t today, is it? Um, but if we drop down to verse 9, for example, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is there strength, labour and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. And there's, there's the difference, you see. God is from everlasting to everlasting, whereas our days on the earth are numbered. We often speak about three score and ten, don't we? Or a little, little more. But we know that that is still true. I, I understand that the average uh, lifespan in this country is something like 74 years old. So... You know, what the Bible says there is still true despite the fact we've got modern medicine and all the things that go with that. So what we're saying really is we do need to look at this from God's point of view. And let's turn to the prophet Isaiah next, right? Just two or three books on from the Psalms. Isaiah chapter 59. Because we find out here why it is that we cannot see God. Isaiah 59. This chapter begins, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But... Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Also, that, that shows us the reason, doesn't it, why we cannot see God. It's because God is holy, is just, is right, is righteous, is true... And he will not look on iniquity, as the Bible tells us elsewhere. And in this chapter, Isaiah expands on it a little bit. We say, well, what are our, our iniquities which are separated between us and our God? Verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any plead for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. These are the things that, that God cannot, uh, he, he cannot cope with them, if we can put it that way, to use our sort of language. God will not look on these things. Because he is holy. And really we should be 
altogether thankful for that fact, and we'll come back to that later on, that God will have nothing to do with the sort of things that we've looked at in verses 3 and 4 of that chapter. I suppose we could say, well, we never committed murder. Your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Well, can any one of us in this room say that we've never done that? So, although some of these things are uh, the more gross sins, if we can put it that way, sadly, we are all prone to do these things. Uh, Verse 7, speaking about the wicked, their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. So once again, there we've got, there we've got the more gross sins mentioned in that verse. What about verse 13? In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Once again, things which are not true. Judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. You see, our God is a God of truth. And once again, that is so important, because Because he is a God of truth, we can have implicit faith and confidence in everything that he says. He's not going to change his mind in in the way that humans so often do. Or, Or to look at that from another angle, if we turn into the New Testament now, and Paul's letter to the Romans, and chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, if we go in at, just to get the flavour of what Paul is saying here, let's go in at verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So here Paul is talking about salvation, you see, and God is willing to offer salvation to those who believe in him, and those who strive to the best of their ability to serve him, to obey his his laws and his commandments. Verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, from faith to faith that is written, the just shall live by faith. So God will look down with favour on those who believe his word, but those who don't, they will receive the wrath of God. That's the next verse, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That phrase, who hold, means to suppress. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed his unto them For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So there's no excuse for saying, I, I don't believe in God. And we know, don't we, that it's the theory of evolution which has persuaded so many people that there is no God. Everything around us is just chance. And when you start to think about it, it's an absurd idea, really. Everything around us is chance, they say. Just millions and millions of years, and they build up this theory. And here Paul is saying, the invisible things of God are clearly seen in what he has created. When we look at the wonders of his creation, Paul says there's no excuse for not believing in God. The Bible, of course, does describe gods which can be seen. Let's just think about that for a moment. Turn back to the Psalms. Psalm 115. <coughs> These words are describing the gods that the people had in Old Testament times. But there's not much difference between them and the gods that are around today. So Psalm 115, let's start at verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen of the nations say, where is now their God? Where is God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. That's where our God is. But then the psalm describes the gods of the nations round about Israel. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. Ears have they, and they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet they have, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. <clears throat> and there's a description of the sort of gods that the nations round about Israel had. They made them themselves. And, and, and I'm sure we've seen, we've seen pictures of them uh, and, and drawings of them. Idols. They might have mouths and noses and eyes and so on, but they are completely lifeless, as the Bible says elsewhere. They've got mouths, but there's no breath in them. There's no breath in the mouths of these gods. And furthermore, they are gods that cannot save. Just go back to Isaiah once again. I'm sorry we're moving around a fair bit here to, to look at these different things. Uh, back into Isaiah in chapter 46. Because we've got uh, descriptions there once again. Uh, this time it's, it's specifically the gods of Babylon which are being described in this particular chapter. So Isaiah 46 verse 1 we read there Bel 
boweth down, and Nebo stoopeth. You see, Bel and Nebo were gods of ancient Babylon. <coughs> and Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beasts. So the gods of Babylon were so heavy that it needed a cart and some sort of animal to pull the cart along. They were too heavy for men to move, in other words. But the prophet goes on to describe them. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. These gods can't do anything. And sadly, the nation of Israel wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted God that they could see as well. We can't see our God, they said. And they wanted to be like the gods. And, and here Isaiah is describing what those gods were like. They had to be carried around on carts. And we see the contrast again, verse 3. Hearken unto me... O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, and are carried from the womb. What a difference, you see. The, the people of Babylon had to carry their gods, and God, the God of Israel says, I will carry you. I will carry you from the cradle to the grave, is what he's saying there. Verse 5, it says, To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal? And compare me that we may be like. So there's a challenge. Can you find another God like the God of Israel? Like the God who is revealed in the pages of the Bible? Like the creator of heaven and earth? Whom will you like me? Uh, and then verse 6 goes on to talk about these gods of Babylon. They lavish gold out of the bag and, and weigh silver in the balance. And hire a goldsmith. And he maketh it a God. And they fall down, yea, they worship this God that they have made. They bear him upon the shoulder, they carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove, yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. So once they put their God down in one place, that was it. That was their, where the gods stayed. Uh, and their gods could not save them in the way that the God of Israel can save. And although we cannot see the God of Israel, we know that he's there by, as was mentioned briefly already, by the things that he's made by his creation. So let's contrast while we're in Isaiah, just turn back to chapter 43. Contrast the one true God with these gods of Babylon. And I, I, really, although the gods of Babylon, we might laugh at them nowadays, you know, chunks of stone or wood or silver or gold, whatever they were, and they worshipped them. But it's possible for us to have gods that we worship. They are gods much more sophisticated, aren't they? Mouth have they, we call them loudspeakers. Ears have they, we call them sensors. You know? So the gods that men make nowadays, 
do have these things, but there's still no breath in them, and that they can't save either. So, Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. So, had Israel, and there were some faithful ones in Israel, of course, they put their trust in God. And therefore, they could rest assured, as it were, that, that he would help them. See what verse 3 says. I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel. There's, there's, there's the Holy God once again, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Saviour, he says. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, and Ethiopia and Seba for thee. It says, verse 5, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed descendants from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And there the prophet is speaking about the time when God was going to bring back his nation, the nation of Israel, back to their land. And we've seen that in the last, what, 50, 60 years. That's another story again. But it's in this chapter, uh, 43, at verse 8, that God issues a challenge, as it were. He says, bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. In other words, those who have got eyes but don't want to use them really and those who have got ears but don't want to use them either in other words those who will not accept the evidence that there is a God who does exist verse 9 let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled who among them can declare this and show us former things let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. And he's speaking to the nation of Israel. If you want evidence that there is a God in the earth, just look at the nation of Israel. A unique nation in the world. And there's another evidence. We've mentioned the evidence of creation. Here's another evidence that there, that there is a God who is in control of all things. And his chosen nation is Israel. And in, latter, in these latter days, he's, he's brought them back to their own land. What does verse 10 say? You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know, and believe me, and understand that I am he. So when we look at Israel, it's so that we might know God, believe him, and understand the way that he works. He says, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. So God, first and foremost, is our Saviour. I know we often think of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour. But God is our Saviour. He does it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, 
speaking to Israel again. He says, I have declared and I've saved and I've showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. When we look through the history of the nation of Israel, we see how true that is. How that when the nation turned to God, he saved them from their enemies. He saved them in miraculous ways very often. But when they forsook him, he, he left them to their own devices, as it were. So I suppose what we're saying, really, they had to decide which way they were going to go. And, and it's the same for modern people as well, isn't it? We have to decide whether or not we believe in a God, even though we can't see him, or whether we don't believe in a God. And sadly, the majority nowadays choose the latter, don't they? They choose to believe that, well, everything around us is just chance. There is no God. And what they've done, of course, is to remove any responsibility to God uh, by doing that. Well, let's think next about whether this will always be the case. Will it always be the case that we cannot see God? Well, let's just go to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Just read one or two verses here. Revelation 21, verse 1. John says here, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first of the former heaven and the, the former earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Uh, and John is using symbolic language here, the language of the Old Testament. When he says there was no more sea, the sea represents the nations. No more nations. Because as Jeremiah the prophet said, there's only going to be one nation in the end, and that's the na nation of Israel. Though I make a full end of all nations, God says, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But read on verse 2. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And once again, these verses are picking up the symbols which are used elsewhere in the Bible. We, we can't take this literally, can we? I mean, a city can't look like a bride, literally. But Jerusalem is descriptive of the faithful of all ages, as is the bride. It's the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be united with her when he returns to the earth. But th this is speaking about a time beyond that even. Verse 3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. So that verse is driving home the message that one day, God is going to dwell with his people. It says it about three or four times, isn't it? He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. 
And if we just read the next verse, verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. You see, when the time comes that God dwells with men, all those things, like sorrow and sighing and death, will be a thing of the past. If we can try and just put it in a nutshell, from the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and they were, as it were, in fellowship with him. But they rebelled against his word. And so there was a separation between God and man, and that separation has remained. The only, the only one who's, who's bridged the gap, as it were, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But eventually, those who are faithful will be brought back to God. They will be brought back to life. They will be brought back to truth. They will be brought, brought back to all the things that, that God is about. And all those things which are human things, you know, like the lies and everything, those things will be no more. But that's the end of the story, isn't it? And as we've said already, the Bible is the book which is designed, A, to make us think the way that God thinks, his thoughts and his ways, so that ultimately we might be reunited with God, as it were. That's what the Bible is all about. That's what religion is all about. A binding again between God and the people. Can we turn for our last reference to the uh, first epistle of John? That's not the Gospel of John, but it's just right near Revelation. If we go backwards from Revelation, we've got Jude, and then we've got these letters of John. So the first letter of John, and chapter 1. First John chapter 1, and well, let's begin at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show to you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. You see, eternal life comes from God, ultimately, but it's been manifested to us. Um, just drop down to verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You see, that's why we cannot see God. Because God is light, and there's no darkness with God at all. And we know, don't we, that, that light is a symbol of the Word of God. And darkness is a symbol of being without it. And when we are without the Word of God, when we go contrary to the Word of God, we are in darkness. So John goes on at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with God... And walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. 
But if we walk in the light, as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we might make him, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So here John is speaking about those who want to come to God. We can't come to God, verse 6. We can't have fellowship with God and at the same time walk in darkness. Uh, and John makes the contrast in these epistles between just individual sins and walking in sin, in other words, practising sin. So if we walk in darkness, it's a way of life. We don't, we don't know the truth and we, are, we cannot be in fellowship with God at all. But if we walk, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, right? so now if, if our mode of life, if you like, our practice is to be in the light, walking in the light, we have fellowship with one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So it is possible for us to be what united with God, even though we can't see him in this life. It's done through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's done also by walking in the light. If we just turn over to chapter 2 of John, we see what he's saying there. He says, My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We say, it's not a contradiction. These things I write unto you that ye sin not. And the very next sentence, well, if you do sin, and I think what John is saying is that you do not walk in sin. But if we do commit a sin, which we all do, of course, that's when we have an advocate with the Father. And it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that those sins can be forgiven. So, in this life, we can be united with God, even though we can't see him. But as we've seen from Revelation, ultimately, God will dwell with men. So, God will be seen on the earth. So, although at the moment, the Bible is a message from a God which we cannot see, we've looked briefly at why we cannot see him. It's because we are sinners, to put it bluntly. But... The time will come eventually when all sin will be removed from the earth. All those things which are abhorrent to God will be removed from the earth. And then he will dwell with men. And that's only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bridge, as it were, between God and ourselves. And it's through him that we can come to God. And what, what a wonderful, what a merciful arrangement this is. You see, I suppose God could have said at the beginning, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, ah, oh, wipe them off the face of the earth. But he didn't do that, did he? he? He made this way possible, whereby sinful man might get back to God. You know, 
sinful man had separated himself from God and therefore separated himself from life and light and all the good things that go with God. But it's possible to get back to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course it, it's the Bible, the word of God, which shows us how we can do that. And that of course is why we have uh, Bible talks from this another platform to try and encourage people to read the Bible so that we might know the way that God wants us to go so that ultimately we might dwell with God.